Hello and welcome to the Wingnet Travel Podcast with me, James Hammond. Personally, I have been to 50 countries. I've met so many people in my travels that I want to bring them on this podcast and get their story on record. I have plenty of tips and stories to share with you as well. Are you a backpacker or a traveller or gap year student or simply someone who loves to travel? Then this is the podcast for you. Throughout the weeks and months, you'll get many guests and solo episodes where I try to cover all range of subjects within travel. This is a casual and informative travel podcast to inspire you to travel in the future. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks for listening and supporting this. And I'll see you soon. Cheers, James. Hello and welcome to episode 56, Travelling with Emma Thompson. Emma is a fantastic journalist in the travel industry and has written for so many publications like National Geographic Traveller, The Metro, Even Standard, Wanderlust Magazine, etc. So we're going to talk a lot about travel this week. It's going to be covering Iran... Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bhutan, Zimbabwe, and we also delve in some favourite travel and for Emma too, such as like Fiji and some secret beaches and stuff like that. So it's a real cool episode this week, and there's a lot of information about what life is like as a travel journalist if you're interested in that sort of sphere. And I like to delve into that sort of personal travel as well and to see what she likes um, personally. So tune in, it's great. Last week's episode was fantastic, episode 55 with uh, Marissa and Michael, fantastic. People loved that sort of sabbatical year quitting a job biking around Southeast Asia and Europe that's a fantastic reaction to that so I really hope you enjoyed that and we crack on we've got so many more guests coming on in March and April so tune in and be inspired and hopefully that'll get you out there to book that trip or maybe go for a bit longer as COVID kind of seems to be on the way out so I've just been to LA this week and it's fantastic to get back out there again in the airport seeing some sights and I will do an episode on that a set episode about that trip so watch out for that too thank you so much don't forget to rate and review my podcast on whatever you like I think my personal choice is Podchaser you can do Spotify Apple Podcast Addict whatever you like good pods as well uh, and also you can support the podcast by chipping in to buy me a coffee for $5 or you can buy some merchandise with Public, which I do have um, I'll put the affiliate link into my Instagram and Twitter profiles for you to access as I mentioned them social media I am all over Twitter Instagram Facebook and TikTok so if you want to connect with me you can also email me at jameshammondtravel at gmail.com and i'll get in contact with you cheers have a good one let's get into the episode hello and welcome to the winning travel podcast and this week i'm joined by travel journalist emma thompson emma is a multi-award winning travel journalist who most recently was named the travel writer of the year in 2019 by the british guild of travel writers and also won the national consumer feature of the year at 2019 the travel media awards emma is a regular contributor to <laughs> national geographic traveler the telegraph the Times and Wanderlust Travel Magazine to name a few. An experienced speaker, she has given talks at the National Geographic Headquarters in Washington DC, the Frontline Club and Royal Geographical Society in London and can occasionally be heard on BBC Radio 4's from her own correspondent. You can follow her travels on Instagram at Emma Thompson Travels and Emma is here today to talk about her life as a travel journalist, some of her favourite places to travel, upcoming book and some of the assignments on the horizon. Emma, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hello, thank you for that lovely welcome. No worries. <laughs> to be on the podcast. And your dog is joining us too. Yeah, I apologise if she barks <laughs> occasionally. <laughs> no, I love that. What type of dog have you got? She's a collie. Ah, oh, love a collie. <laughs> and where are you currently based at the minute, Emma? So I'm, yeah, speaking to you from Kent in the UK, leafy Kent. <laughs> wow. And where are, you, where are you originally from? I'm guessing Scotland. Oh, thank you. It's funny. <laughs> Some people mistake my accent as American or Canadian. So I was no way. Being you based in Vancouver, I thought, oh, would I pass as a Canadian? I think it's the role of the R's, maybe. 
Yeah, I didn't cheat. I mean, I obviously read your bio and you're from <laughs> Scotland, but even when I heard you on the webinar that we're going to talk about uh, in a bit about Pakistan travel, I was like, oh, yeah, she's Scottish. Oh, that's good. <laughs> and how's COVID been for you and lockdown? Yeah, strange time, like everyone. It's, um, I didn't make any sourdough, I'll admit that now. But um, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was an interesting time to reevaluate, actually, because I'd sort of um, been on the road sort of nonstop for about 10 years. And I'd only been back at home sort of two or three months out of the year for that entire time. So at first I was like, oh, this is nice to, you know, recuperate and, and catch up. And, um, and it was also like professionally quite a good pause to reevaluate how you're approaching things. Okay. Um, I sort of, you know, really took stock of, you know, how many flights I was taking and the impact of that. and. Uh, you know this sort of move towards like more sustainable longer journeys and things and I, it's definitely you know the way forward now I think yeah you're absolutely right I think I'm doing the same just re-evaluating what I've been doing um, yeah. pre-COVID yeah you're right and I saw a status that I put on Facebook it must have been three or four years ago I don't I actually done a tally of our um, trip for about four months the amount of flights and the miles I was like oh my god that sounds horrendous mm-hmm. quite interesting but yeah it, it's time to reevaluate. I think Especially, yeah, I did quite a lot of research into, you know, the carbon offsetting schemes and, and they just don't balance it at all. So I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we're going to yeah. talk about some of those travels that you've done the last 10 years today. Uh, yeah. We've got quite a few lined up, which I'm really excited about. Kind of leads us nicely onto life as a travel journalist. So in your bio, you said it said you were kind of hooked on travel by the age of 14. So that's quite a young age. For me personally, probably 21, 22. Mm-hmm. So what, what happened in those early years? Do you know what I would say is even maybe younger? One of my earliest memories is, um, you know, I was living up in Scotland and we took a flight down from Edinburgh to London to visit my grandparents. And I remember looking out the plane window and just seeing how vast the earth was and having a very clear thought of, you know, I need to walk as much of this earth as possible. And I, you know, I was, yeah, maybe six, seven. And that sort of stayed with me. And it just grew and grew. I mean, my wanderlust was insatiable. By the time I left school, it was sort of like a greyhound out the gates. Sort of oh, thing. wow. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, I was champing at the bit to uh, to see the world. And it's just, I, I was a nerd and would spend lunchtimes uh, in the library looking at old National Geographics and wow. making lists of places I wanted to see. And yeah, not very cool, but I loved it. That's just cool now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. It's, I'm actually slightly jealous because I never, I was never kind of like exposed to it. Quite a working class background, I, I admit. So never going to go on holidays, nowhere near abroad, maybe occasionally in the summer to UK somewhere, but just didn't really click. But I guess that kind of result of where you grew up, right? And maybe the environment that if you are traveling with your family at a young age to like, you know, Spain or something or abroad in Europe, you probably would get that lust to go and travel early on, I think. Yeah, it's funny. I'm not sure. Like, I, I think we took... The first trip I ever remember taking was to Malta and it was a literal flying flop with uh, my parents and I must have been about eight Uh, but before that I think it was mainly just sort of you know beaches in Scotland where we're growing up so it's oh wow okay yeah it wasn't a huge exposure I mean my father was in the RAF so but we didn't get posted abroad or anything so there wasn't that sort of you know early immersion that you hear from some sort of you know uh, air forces families and things so I don't know where it came from Well, talking to RAF, I was going to join the RAF when I was younger. That was the only thing. So that oh, kind of okay. uh, had a huge decision to make when I was about 18, 19. And I chose 
music at the time. Then obviously travel came later, but yeah, I remember being in cadets. Like, so I did have a little bit of exposure to it because I was doing flying on the weekends with cadets, right? Oh, yeah. It was amazing. So, um, oh yeah, my dad loved it. It's uh, good experiences. Yeah, I thought that. I guess that's weird. Actually, look, looking back, I'm going to admit, actually, I was exposed because I was thinking, oh, imagine being paid to go and fly or fly somewhere, be posted around the world, right? So I guess I did have that little feeling inside me. Planted but the seed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just took a while to germinate. <laughs> it did, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think music took over for a little bit, and then I realised that it's a very hard industry to get into. What made you want to become a writer? I guess, I guess you're a writer first and foremost, right? And then you're a travel journalist, I guess, second. Is that fair to say? Well, it's interesting. So a lot of um, other travel journalists say, you know, you need to be a writer first and foremost, and then the travel comes second. Um, but, you know, I'll throw my hands up and be completely honest that they are equal passions for me. Um, okay. You know, I, I was writing stories from a very young age um, and just loved sort of the the crafting of a good sentence and that sort of, yeah, the sort of beauty in that. Um, and then, yeah, just paired beautifully with the the traveling so. yeah I wish I had that that's uh basically the reason I start a podcast because I can't write <laughs> I've tried it and I've, I'm just not, not not true not, not true. true not true it's just it's just a muscle you just uh okay. you don't, if you don't use it you'd lose it but um it's definitely uh definitely doable but there's, there's a skill in getting people engaged in the sentence and the paragraph right yeah and everyone needs a mentor it's you know yes. I've had people throughout Great. my career that have sort of showed me how to certain craft certain things and I think if you have one of those it can be really helpful okay maybe I should spend a bit more time into that <laughs> invest <laughs> a bit more time your love for travel and writing were equal in a sense I guess going in growing into adulthood I guess you, you're obviously trying to go to those sort of like areas of work right or areas of industry so I guess you studied writing and traveled as much as you could yeah, I did uh, English at university and then I was, um, you know, I, I set up things like our, our student newspaper didn't have a travel section. So I set that up and oh, nice. then was doing work experience with Lonely Planet and Wanderlust magazine and, and all those in between my university holidays. Um, yeah. Again, I told you I'm a bit of a nerd. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, and then when I could save up some money, um, I would, you know, pay for my own trips at the beginning. I remember one of the first pieces I ever wrote because you know one of the things I get asked most often is you know this chicken and egg situation of um people won't commission me until I can show something to yeah. being published mm -hmm. <laughs> but I can't get anything published until I get the commission and um and so I I broke that by um I saved up enough money to go to the ice hotel in Sweden the very first year opened which wow yeah shows, shows my age a bit but um <laughs> And uh, I paid and I could only afford to stay there one night, but I contacted, I was uh, living in Oxford at the time and I, you know, said to the guy on the Oxford Times desk, look, I'll, I'll write you a piece. Of course, didn't get paid anything for it. Of course, it, yeah. But it got that first piece in print and uh, yeah, it was great. <laughs> yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that because my friend who came on um, episode 50, Mark, he's now editor of Auto Autocar and he obviously was writing for them previous eight or nine years to get to that position right but I remember his first he was the same as you he had to come stay at my flat in London because I studied music at the time yeah. and he was I said oh you're getting paid for this and he goes nah nah I've got to go in there I'm volunteering I'm writing pieces about cars um just like just get a bit of portfolio going really and then exactly look where you guys are now so <laughs> here you go but, yeah <laughs> yeah it pays off right exactly so uh, life as a travel journalist I think people be quite intrigued by this 
um, here's what I think, and I could be completely wrong, is mm-hmm. that people would reach out to you, say, hey, look, we've got this country or maybe a, a specific subject in this country that want you to go and travel and experience and come back and write for us your experiences. I guess that's basically what I would think. Is that quite so different to that? I'm lucky enough to be in that position now, but yeah. I've sort of been in the game for you know nearly 10 years now. Um, when I started out, it certainly wasn't like that. It was, you know, constant pitching um, of yeah. ideas. Um, again, you know, a lot of rejections, but you just keep going. Um, now I'm at this the, the, the stage where it's probably about 60, 40. So 60% of the time people will come to me. Yeah. And then 40% of the time is me pitching. Um, and that that's also balanced because of the type of destinations I prefer to cover. Like I okay. prefer to cover sort of emerging destinations or those sort of recovering from sort of natural disaster or political upheaval where they mm-hmm. need tourists back. But perhaps say the FCO warnings are, you know, a, a little too <laughs> cautious um, <laughs> and they keep tourists longer, way longer than they should. Um, so I, I, I enjoy those types of places. And sometimes that, takes a bit more encouragement from my side uh, okay and speaking to the editors in terms of encouraging them to, to actually cover it so and it proves also I mean I can I can only relate to this podcast really with that sort of um, mentality of pitching is it probably takes me it took me a year before people started saying oh look yeah I'll come on and talk about travel whereas mm-hmm. like the last year up till probably maybe start of this year I was like trying to get out to as many people as possible hey do you want to come on and you will get rejected like it, it, there's no two ways about it and it's no, there's no shame in that you can absolutely yeah. accept the no it's fine <laughs> absolutely it's nothing personal it's just not, not the right idea at the right time or whatever so exactly and i think perseverance and just keep going really uh, you eventually absolutely. get there right yeah perseverance is absolutely key in this industry um as well as sort of you know going to events and meeting people face to face because you know editors get thousands of emails a day and sure. uh if they just see your name ping up and they think, oh, I remember meeting, you know, James at such and such or whatever, mm. then it'll sort of stand out a bit more. So that's also helpful. Okay. So it's like almost mingling with um, fellow professionals, right? Trying to just create those contacts yeah. and a bit of networking. The networking, that's, that's the word I was trying to find. <laughs> and we're going to delve into obviously specifics of places that you've gone to write for, but mm. I guess you came back full circle really, with recognition by, you've got so many awards. I mean, I, I listed a few at the start. Uh, one or two but on your bio on your website website is just e thompson.co.uk that's it yeah. and there's like a list of yeah awards <laughs> that you've got so but thank you <laughs> no, I don't, no i think it's worth recognition right so it must be just a full circle like oh yeah i'm actually done all right with this like it's it's quite must be quite nice to be recognized it is i think because sometimes you can feel like you're writing in a bit of a bubble so, okay. you know, these wars can be quite nice to think, oh, you know, someone actually is reading. What <laughs> yeah. And, and they think it's not too bad. So that's, it's a nice little sort of um, boost. <laughs> <laughs> boost. Actually, to be fair, my friend, Matty Dias, he came on episode 51. He's a, he got Wanderlust magazine, named him the fourth best travel oh, wow. tour guide in the world. And he oh, said, it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit arbitrary. He said, it's nice, but it's arbitrary. And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, well... It's not really about being named the best or, you know, something like that, because it's about the people and experiences, right? And if people have a good time, that's the main thing. So exactly. people enjoy reading a, your stuff. That's the main thing, right? It's the cherry on the Sunday. It's not why you do it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Oh, good for him, though. That's uh, well deserved because that is an incredibly hard job balancing all those groups. <laughs> <laughs> he, he made a quite a funny comment. He said that uh, 
the top three, I think one's like doing tours in Bhutan, India, Nepal. And he's mm-hmm. like, in lockdown, I was doing tours in Newcastle and Scotland and Hadrian's <laughs> Wall. And he said, but these people were British people. So I had to like, there's no surprise here. They've got to really make it interesting for them to have a good time <laughs> because yeah. they've got mountains, Himalayas, different cultures, the whole lot. <laughs> yeah, it may seem hard to compete with that, actually. Yeah. Newcastle versus Bhutan. <laughs> yeah. No offense to Newcastle, by the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> sorry, Newcastle. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. And <laughs> just to finish on, you do a bit of broadcasting as well. Um, that's on your Yeah, bio. yeah. D- uh, dabbled here and there. Um, do stuff for the BBC4 radio from our own correspondent. And uh, moonlighted a bit when I was living in Belgium. They had a... Um, a TV program called Fans of Flanders. So uh, okay. I did some stuff for them. And it's a bit embarrassing being in front of the camera. But, uh, oh, you're not a fan? <laughs> uh, you know, I was initially quite a shy, shy girl growing up. So when you've got something trained on you, it's uh, unnerving at first. But then yeah. it's quite good fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, just to finish, actually, I didn't ask. You lived in Belgium for quite a long while, right? Before UK now. I did, I did. Um, I was uh, with a Belgian show, Flemish chap, for uh, for quite a while, and uh, yeah, we were based in Alst, just uh, to the west of Brussels. Okay. And uh, it was really interesting. I, you know, I ended up writing a guidebook just to Flanders. You know, obviously, most of them just cover Belgium as a whole, but um, it, it's just one of the most misjudged places. People, you know, classic joke of, oh yeah, I drove through on the way to Germany or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's it's so quirky and hip now, and I think people still have this image of it being quite fuddy-duddy, and it's not the case. Um, you know, Brussels itself is quite a schizophrenic city because of you know the the NATO and the EU, and yeah. um, it sort of doesn't you know the business district conflicting with the old town and everything. But um, that's why I enjoyed writing the guide because you can sort of pull out all these strands for people to explore and you know places like Antwerp are so cool mm. achingly hip <laughs> and um, yeah a lot more than uh, chips beer and chocolate which is usually people have some up <laughs> yeah I mean unfortunately I've only been there for the chocolate and war stuff so you know memorials poppy fields mm. etc so I, I just remember getting told even by history teachers growing up right in school uh, I think I'm roughly the same age as you, so not not too far behind, maybe. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, they're like, oh yeah, this is boring. It's a place where people have wars, and it's a boring place. I'm like, how can you judge that like that? Like, look back, how can you judge a place like that? So I'm glad you got some different content out there to kind of appease those those views. Yeah, no, it's uh, definitely worth more than a weekend break for sure. <laughs> Fantastic! I'll add that to my ever growing list. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we're going to go on to a recent assignment. Um, so I obviously follow Emma on, on social media. So she was in Sri Lanka recently, just this year, and has released an article in the Times um, called Sri Lanka at its most glorious. Now, how was Sri Lanka? It's on my it's been on my list for a while now. I've been to India, but it's it's kind of been closely followed up. Like I need to go there, I need to go there. But obviously, a few things have happened recently. So how was what was the, what was the premise of your tour there what what are you looking to maybe write about there so i mean it was a simple angle and just in terms of encouraging tourists to return after covid um to help reinvigorate the economy um you know sri Sri lanka um has quite a severe uh debt problem okay um that they're uh they're going to pay off and tourism uh is a large part of helping allows them to pay that off um and 
so it was uh, a 10 day tour um, visiting, you know, most of the standard sites. Um, mm-hmm. But that was quite a nice introduction for me because it was my first time there. I've actually never spent, embarrassingly, um, any time in, well, I spent a day in India. But um, it's quite embarrassing because my grandfather was born there and grew up there. And I've uh, sort of been, so I can offer a sort of comparison in terms of sure. the two. But um but it, so it was really interesting to be able to interview um, some of the locals and people at various uh, levels of the tourism industry to see how they've been affected. Um, yeah, it's uh, highly recommended. And I love your tagline. It's it's beaches, temples and tea country. The calling, go now and you have them to yourself. So mm-hmm. there, there you go. If, if people need a bit of a tagline to go, there's a few reasons why. I mean, absolutely. I mean, for travellers that are so nervous, I'd say about any, you know, the paperwork involved with travelling during COVID. Yes, it seems like a hassle initially, but it's, you know, short in terms of the the payback you get. And, you know, sites like, you know, one of their biggest sites is the UNESCO listed uh, Sagria, um, which is a incredible 200 metre high rock monolith with the ruins of an ancient palace on top of it. Um, And usually, you know, you're queuing to climb up the side of it. Yeah. And when we were there, none of that. And you had all these beautiful unencumbered views from the top. And so you can really have some quite iconic sites to yourself at the moment, work in there early. Yeah, yeah. And on your article, I'll, I'll put links into the show notes for your articles too, so people can access these. But the photo of that, was, it blew my mind. I put wow in the notes because I was obviously doing my notes about Sri Lanka. And do you take all the photos in your in the articles? Is that your photos? Um, so I do take some and do submit them, but yeah. um, it, it <laughs> they get rejected. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. But no, so uh, newspapers also have deals with news agencies, photo yeah. agencies, and if they don't use a certain number of images each year, they use lose their discount and things like that. I'll, I'll say that's why mine weren't used. Uh, that's going to give you like a huge amount of credit for that photo because I was like, wow, that is incredible. <laughs> Yeah, it was just epic, that view. I mean, uh, yeah, if people go to my Instagram, they can see it up there, just these sort of, you know, silhouetted mountains in the background and this sort yeah. of, but it looked like Shangri-La, didn't it? It did, yeah. The, the colour is amazing. You, you, you can clearly see the steps. And yeah. from my time in India, like a lot of uh, monuments and stuff you see have got steps. It's quite a classic thing and, and they're pretty full. But yeah, you can just clearly see that there's a few people on there. So that's great if you go now. It's not too crowded. Because I guess pre-COVID, I guess that would have been heathen right with the tourists oh, oh yeah i mean i spoke to one of the locals and um i think they got i don't to remember the figures off the top of my head it's something like 1200 people a day at least visiting um and they said it was you know like a tenth of that at the moment so and this is a dwindling figures obviously because of covid but also because of the terrorist attacks as well that happened before uh, it could be it was sort of you know like the perfect storm really in terms of the, the timings of it all yeah, they've had a bit of a hard time. Yeah, and that's awful, really. But hopefully people will start to flock back because it looks an incredible country. I mean, they if you should. go to... And it's you, safe now, so... Yeah, it's safe, as I was say. Like, I don't think there any problems now to go, right? Some of the other stuff that you saw in this, I've got a, like, a list of your little itinerary here. Obviously, you went to Colombo. So I guess you flew mm-hmm. in and out of there. What's Colombo like as a city? Do you recall much? So I didn't... I, <laughs> so I'll admit, I didn't spend much time there um, because uh, just the way it works, uh, this... Uh, came up quite last minute so the tour okay. had already left so I joined them a couple of days in so I won't speak uh, too much to Colombo but yeah. um, 
places like, yeah, Sugria that I mentioned, um, the Dambula Caves. Um, so, I mean, Sri Lanka has some of the most scenic railway journeys in the world. Yes. Um, you've yeah. also got all the, the, the British uh, lines, which were originally established to uh, export, you know, the tea from the centre down to mm-hmm. Colombo and, you know, coconut, rubber, uh, all that stuff. Um, and, uh, and although the railways, they sort of fell out of use from the 1950s, almost till about 2010 actually oh wow um they you know they kept the lines and they kept the carriages i mean they're not steam anymore obviously they're diesel mm. now. um but the the charm and the colors and the the scenery oh my goodness like and it's also a certain freedom you know you know people think of rail travel here in the uk as you know stuffy over cabins with you know <laughs> yeah. everyone buried in their phones yeah. just gritting their teeth to get through it <laughs> but um but this you know you know they've got obviously first second and third class but you know just turn up get a ticket for third class and you can just sort of hang out the train window and you know there's no you know glass in the windows so you can just you know there's this breeze it's you know you've got vendors coming on and selling you rice and curry it's just such a great way to immerse yourself in in, uh, local Sinhalese life so I'd absolutely second that to space in India we we've got trains everywhere and don't be afraid of the trains like there's different classes. It depends what level of comfort you want, but they're all pretty cheap. So we, we, I think we stuck in general class, which is like a sleeper train because India is obviously much bigger. So it's going to take a while to get to one place to another. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're absolutely like on, on day trips and trains just hanging out the windows like you see on the photos and that, that wind rush through the air, like through your hair and stuff like that. Oh. I'm a but big fan of uh, trains. Love it. Fan. Yeah. Scotland have <laughs> got some great train rides, right? Scotland must... Are up there? Yeah, I can't, I can't say I'd taken many, but yeah, they do. <laughs> the classic photo the of getting across the locks. Yeah, yeah, it's always the case. You never explore your own backyard enough. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and there's one other place I want to mention is, is Yala National Park because I saw on your piece that it's actually one of the best places mm-hmm. outside of Africa to go and see leopards. It is, it is. So I suppose my national park center is it's quite small, and um, they have a healthy population of leopard. Um, it's you know, I'm very keen to always be honest with other travellers. Yeah. Um, so they have quite a small, uh, sorry, a short season because of, you know, the rains and everything where they um, can offer people to come inside. Um, so there's quite a lot of pressure on the tour guides to sort of make their living. Um, so it can get quite crowded. And when okay. news of a leopard sort of crackles over the radio, there's sort of this mad rush, which... You know, it can be off-putting for some people, but then um, they are, you know, fairly respectful of, uh, of the cats. And um, and there's plenty of other wildlife to see as well. Um, mm. It's not just always about the, you know, the, the big cats. Um, you know, there's, you know, elephant and deer, and incredible bird life as well. Okay. So, yeah, it shouldn't be missed. It shouldn't be missed. Great. Okay. And who did you go on a tour with when you're in Sri Lanka? So that was with Cox and Kings um, and they're great. And um, they also take you to some really lovely hand-picked um, sort of boutique options. And one of them, okay. uh, which I definitely recommend is the Heritance Tea Factory, which is um, uh, an old tea factory, like over a hundred years old, that's been restored into a hotel, but incredibly sympathetically, you've got the old, you know, wrought iron elevators and yeah. you've still got the machinery that they used <laughs> to, to uh, do it all. And um yeah, it's got a huge character, and the and the restaurants is inside a, a railway carriage. 
Um, and of course, you've got these incredible, you know, neon green tiers of uh, the fields, like mm. falling down the mountainside, and it's it's very, very scenic. Okay, and you actually remind me of a question I did put on here: food. Of course, what? How can we not talk about food? What? Oh, yeah. What is? <laughs> so I don't know if it's you the just same, gotta like your spices. All I'll say. Yes, you gotta <laughs> give you a bit of a. Actually, that's not fair. Like they have, like you know, you'll stop at some roadside places, and I think you know when they see you coming, they they sort of bring out the slightly cooler curries to sort of cater to the European palate. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, I just I just love the spice. Um, so yeah, and the fresh coconuts and yeah, everything. You you won't go hungry at all. I used to eat um bakora, obviously um breaded. Was it breaded? It's fried. It's fried veg, basically, isn't it? Code. And that, that used to be a staple on the trains in India. It cost like 50p and yeah, get a big bag of pakora. Yeah. Great train food, yeah. yeah. And I guess Sri Lankan food is, is pretty similar to Indian food, I'd imagine, right? So a lot of curries, a lot of dal, yeah. that yeah. sort of stuff. But being southern India, they might have like some doses in there maybe as well, maybe a bit drier stuff. Yeah. Just to give people an idea, in India, there's a north and south divide with food. So southerns have got like, yeah, these doses are like these big, huge, almost like a, I don't know how to describe it, a thin pancake with like a, a mix in the middle with potatoes, onions, and it kind of, it's fried both sides and it's unbelievable and it's a bit more drier where in the north you've got more curries. So there's that sort Stop, of... you're making my mouth water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but the spice will get you as well, so you need to acclimatise to that. And to finish on, on Sri Lanka, anything you want to just part in comments of why people should go there? I think it's just the variety. I mean, you can, you know, it's obviously, you know, much shorter distances compared to, you know, big brother India. And um, as you say, you go from these incredibly lush cloud forests, um, you know, with samba deer and um, up at like you know, places like Horton Plains and things, um, you know, right down to the white sand beaches where you've got, you know, this places like Gal where you have the, um, you know, the Portuguese and the Dutch history yeah. and, you know, quite, quite a surfer community. And it, there's just quite so many contrasts. And then obviously Yala with the wildlife and, um, yeah, it's just offers huge variety um, that you can see in, you know, a good 10, 14 days. So. Brilliant. And I imagine the North is pretty safe now, right? Obviously had troubles back in the past with the Tamil Tigers and stuff, but I'd imagine yeah. that's all settled down and the North might be quite an interesting trip as well. So obviously you can take um, you know, the train up to, to Jaffna and yeah. um, I didn't get that far north, but from what I told, there's still, you can still see some of the scars of the conflict and in fact, it ah. hasn't sort of, you know, fully rebuilt. Um, okay. But obviously it's, you know, it's calm and peaceful at the moment. So yeah, it's fine. might be quite rustic as a, indeed, as a indeed. the southern parts like, get the most stuff, right? It is. Well, I mean, it's that sort of area. There's a lot of salt pans and things, but there are some of, you know, Sri Lanka's best unspoiled beaches up there yeah. as well. So if you're Absolutely. if you're willing to sort of veer away from the, uh, the standard tourist trail, it's definitely worth worth it. Yeah. And just to finish, my own personal comment is if you like cricket, I love cricket. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. um, you want to go to school and see a cricket test match or Colombo, either or. Absolutely. Um, that'd be awesome. And it's good to support them because they obviously they had to rebuild it after the tsunami. Um, yes. And that's all shiny and new now. Very nice. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> okay, next destination. And this is where I actually first maybe become aware of you and, and your and your work was we went to you your panelist on a webinar with Capra uh, Falconeri Traveller webinar about travel in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I must have saw this on social media. I don't even know how I saw it. I was like, oh, yeah, I need to go to that. And it's a 
an hour, hour and a half about traveling in Pakistan, which might seem quite alien to a lot of people maybe listening, and if it's even possible. So you went there on a bit of a trip with Wild Frontiers, and they're quite an interesting company to travel with, right? Like, how was that? Wild Frontiers are a fantastic tour operator. Um, so Johnny Bailby, the, the guy who founded yeah. it, um, he has operated in that area for well over 20 years, um, founded a friendship he made with um, a local Kalash man there and um, sort of built up from there. And so the trip I joined was actually one of his, you know, original babies. It was um, the Hindu Kush adventure. Yeah. And, you know, National Geographic Traveller voted it, you know, one of the top uh, 50 trips of a lifetime. And it, and it really sticks to the sort of the northern uh, mountainous areas. But, I mean, absolutely one of my favourite assignments. Um, okay. It was such a misjudged place. Yeah, where to, be, where to begin? I mean, people have so many preconceptions, you know, they think terrorism, Taliban, yes. Osama bin Laden yeah. have been fed so many angles from the media um but I, I remember um we were staying uh, with another of johnny's friends a, a lovely chap called maksuda mook um, and he runs a beautiful guest house um, near ayun and he said you know all that you hear is not all that is happening and i just thought that was such a beautiful succinct mm-hmm. way of of summarizing the situation because it's true i mean as you know the realities on the ground are very often very different from what we're what we're told yeah that's a very key to any country that we discuss today and obviously my podcast as a whole um we're constantly told by people who come on this as a guest that don't don't believe what you read or see don't you know believe what i've been told by local people about you know what the country is actually like and what the people are actually like that's really key to hear these people who've been there and actually experience it for themselves so the hindu kush adventure looks amazing i'm going to put a link up to that tour because secretly i want to go on that tour that just looks incredible some of the views look unbelievable and i was aware of these because again in india i met some backpackers in a hostel who have been to pakistan and mm-hmm. showed me photos i'm like no way like that is that's a different level and that it, was, it, it really that, is and that's kind of described in this in this webinar right by by the panelists they were just waxing lyrical about the um the views that you can see and, and if you think the photos are good, I mean, nothing compares to seeing in real life. Like, this, you know, amphitheater, some of the biggest mountains in the world and the, you know, the purity of the air. And it's, it's um, you know, you have places like uh, the Hunza Valley, which was, you know, cut off until 1978 until the Karakoram Highway is completed. And it just sits completely encircled by this cauldron of mountains and uh, it really is quite otherworldly. And it's, uh, you know, I think that one of the, the things I loved about Pakistan was it really just bucks expectations every turn because this particular valley, you know, they deeply believe in fairies mm. um, and them sort of living up in the mountains and, and all these, the, the folklore and stories around it. And it's just not what you'd expect. And, and same with the Kalash Valley. I mean, that's home to, um, you know, pagan people. Yeah. Um, and again, it's, you know, people just assume that it's sort of this blanket uh you know religion and faith out there and it's not it's not entirely the case yeah and i looked at the itinerary and you're like in 12 jeeps i think heading north through the alpine swat valley and also i looked at pictures of the shander pass which is named Mm. kind of roughly named as the roof of the world that looks insane as well just the views like incredible 
yeah i mean yeah you've got sort of the you know the yaks grazing and yeah beautiful like alpine flowers and and that's obviously not far from uh you know uh to trial as well which is the highest polo field in the world and yeah i'm not sure if you remember do you remember when michael palin did his travel programs back in the day yeah yeah and he does a lovely segment where he visits the polo players on that polo field um, mm -hmm. so it's worth going going back and having a look at them if you if you've still got them in a, a drawer somewhere <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you still have a vcr player <laughs> yeah wow that is rolling probably about the on years. youtube now <laughs> yeah on youtube, YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> people are like what is vcr let's not even go there yeah i've actually got some at home but let's let's not let's not talk about that <laughs> that shows our age, age again yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah i've got tapes the whole lot don't you worry <laughs> and because pakistan is obviously very new maybe mm. to opening up their the country tourism mm. is the infrastructure maybe not easy like it's not built maybe for yeah casual it's tourism? definitely not um a destination for you know first time travelers or mm. uh people that are you know, prefer their their home comforts. There there are lovely guest houses um, yeah. and hotels, but um, you know, there's certain times. You know, especially when you're, you know, going places uh, up into the mountains. You know, it's just unpaved roads. It's not comfortable. You're being rocked around in the back of the jeep, getting covered in dust. Um, yeah. So it's it's an adventure. Um, but but that it lies the, the charm um, for many because I think. This is not sort of you know a, a packaged <laughs> mm. a packaged place um yeah and it's also you know i should say there was three things that sort of came into effect that have really helped to open up um which should reassure travelers as well which is you know uh in 2019 when i when i went there um british airways had just launched or re-established its direct flight route from london to islamabad after i think it was like an 11 year hiatus oh wow um, yeah and then, of course, you know, the cricket legend Imran Khan had been mm -hmm. you know, his prime minister and he had, had really started uh, stamping down on corruption, which yeah. has had um, quite an impact. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, um, the introduction of the easier uh, e-visa system, which um, I think it's now available for like 175 countries. Oh, wow. And I think 50 of those can also get visa on arrival. I know UK travelers can. I'm not sure about Canadians or Americans. I think okay. they still have to um, do the EVs in advance. But yeah. um, so that makes it, you know, a huge, huge difference. Um, before there was a lot of paperwork, and um, mm. uh, so I think that sort of put people off in the past. Okay, and are people excited to welcome tourists to the country, like the locals? I mean. Oh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it all sounds cliche, but when you say, oh, you know, people are so hospitable, but it's, I mean, obviously there's certain areas, let's not be naive, like, you yeah. know, the Swat Valley that you do pass through, you know, that was off limits to even, you know, many locals until 2009 because of the Taliban activity there. Yes. So yeah. there people are a bit more reserved. And um, I remember sort of walking through the local market and there's sort of, you know, some confused looks, you know, <laughs> coming your way. But then, you know, uh, just as much, you know, I remember, you know, this, uh, chicken seller, you know, cleaver aloft, so they were giving me a big grin and being like, hello, and you know, wanted to find out why we were there. Um, and and I definitely say that's more the majority. And and I'm very, very keen um, for travelers to know that they are not uh, just summarized by the headlines. It's very important to them. So, very important. You're right. Yeah. And as long as you, I guess, as a traveler, adhere to the local customs and the rules and respect, There'd be no problems yeah. whatsoever. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, uh, you know, men have to cover their shoulders and knees, women, you know, head scarf occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's, there's certain areas where that's slightly less rigid, uh, like the Hunza Valley. Um, okay. It's not so enforced for women. Um, yeah. But yeah, of course, you want to, you know, be respectful and uh, abide by the cultural guidelines. Yeah, and I think, as Ryan's saying, at the minute, probably group tours are the best. Just, um, you know, if you're trying to, I, I'm sure it is possible, but I imagine it'd be quite hard to go and, solo backpack or solo travel in the the country that's so new i i would recommend that at the time being um just because it is new things people are sometimes not familiar or not sure how to deal with sort of lone travelers um and uh and also it allows you to see more so you've only got you know a two allocation for traveling time or whatever it allows you to see more in that time instead of you know wasting uh time on you know bad travel connections and things like that and getting stuck in places got it okay there's a great fact from your article which you did write for the telegraph and it said that pakistan has 108 peaks over 7,000 meters so 23,000 feet which mm-hmm. is more than nepal and china combined yeah Exactly. What a fact! Not many people know that. Not many people know that. So if you know, if you love your mountains, um, indeed, you'll be a ha- happy, happy camper. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Final words: Why you should probably travel Pakistan? Maybe get get a tour booked in the next couple of years. Um, again, because it's it's starting to crop up on um, you know top twenty places of the year yes. sort of lists. Yeah, the lists. Yeah. And and Pakistan has you know sort of cropped up on the last three years. So I think awareness is really starting to grow. Um, so yeah, early, early bird catches the worm sort of thing. That's what I found with Sri Lanka and Pakistan here and some of your articles, which we'll go to is because you, cause you write about these up and coming travel destinations. It's like, God, I've got to get it quick because it will catch on. Right. As soon as Lonely Planet starts putting it in lists yeah. and all these big magazines, yeah. um, I know COVID is a bit of a curveball, but normally people start getting there pretty quickly and you want to see it yeah. before the crowds, right? If possible. Yeah. And I get it. Some people, they still, um, I remember when the Telegraph article was published, I got a lot of flack in the online comments. Oh, no. Some of the the, um, comments I won't repeat, they were just, you know, downright (laughs) small minded. But um, yeah, of course. But it always reminds me of that sort of Mark Twain quote. What is it like? You know, travel is uh, fatal to um, prejudice, bigotry and narrow mindedness. I just love that one. And it's, you know, I think as humans, we're quite guilty sometimes of, othering uh places or people that we Mm. don't really know that much about and um and you know you can sort of you know see it in the geopolitical atmosphere the you know environment at the moment the sort of uh, the fostering of fear that engenders and how that sort of translates into bad governance and yeah so you know this is the real power of travel in terms of the good it can offer in terms of you know bringing you know so people together that wouldn't otherwise not have that opportunity and you know because you know some of these communities they're just never going to have the tra- chance to travel outside Pakistan or whatever so by you going to them there can be this real exchange and yeah. um, it, it's invaluable in more ways than I think we allow for actually. Yeah I, I cannot agree more because there's only upsides to this and I think people so many people don't get out of comfort zone enough really to go and experience these type of um, different cultures right so you know, mm. classic going to Spain if you're in UK. Spain's great, don't get me wrong, but maybe try and dip into another country that yeah. doesn't speak maybe English as well or a different type of food, different type of culture and start small and work your way up. 
Exactly, exactly. And uh, yeah, the, each time you keep pushing the envelope and sort of stepping out of your comfort zone a little more, like the, the opportunity for growth and learning is, yeah. It's huge. Yeah, mm. absolutely. <laughs> and I, I, I wax lyrical about Myanmar, for example, because, mm. yeah, we know right now, politically, it's not great because the military has taken over, right? Mm. But I will always say that when we went there for five days, the people were unbelievable. We'll go out of your yeah. way to help you out. Mm. So don't don't see that as a reflection of the people, but it's not. I think that's a very key, quite right, key statement quite to make. Right. Okay, Emma's written so many articles; it was really hard to pin a few down. So, I've lottery dipped, you know, a few that I saw on her website and managed to read, and it's kind of selfishly based on where I want to go. <laughs> so the first one is a place we are going to this year, and uh, talks at the minute. So, I just had a podcast episode this week in terms of recording. It's actually a couple from Drug Asia. So they're Bhutan's, I think Bhutan Royal Airlines official partner in terms of tours. So I've got those guys on to talk about Bhutan. So my first country is Bhutan for you, Emma. And yeah, you're there to kind of measure success with the gross national happiness index. How how did you find measuring that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, it's always the thing that makes the headlines, isn't it? Yeah. They put it over their gross uh, GDP. it's funny because again sort of people can be quick to criticize and say oh it's so naive it's so idealistic but at least they're trying a different model that's what exactly. i respect yeah yeah and um and you know uh critics will say oh it's only applicable because it's you know in a tiny landlocked country and it just wouldn't work with other countries but again um we don't know until we try Indeed. so uh, <laughs> it's uh yeah when are you going to Vidan? Uh, we're thinking october Okay, lovely. Um, which is a technically a high season. So, um, because they're still not technically open the borders yet, I think they're still waiting to. Yeah, you still have to quarantine for two weeks on arrival. Yeah, at the moment. which is a nightmare because you have to pay a daily fee, right? So. Well, exactly. I mean, this is it's. I think it's what two hundred and fifty dollars a day yeah. minimum spend, um, which you know is it's a steep price for for a lot of travelers. Um, it it's is a good way of them keeping uh, things sustainable. For their model it's been quite effective um yeah obviously a lot of uh they have a lot of domestic tourism from up over the border and most mm-hmm. people just come to see uh Paro Taksang or um yeah tiger's nest monastery mm-hmm. and, then, and then they go back um but there's the the more you journey sort of eastwards into sort of like the ha valley and everything oh just the culture is one of the most intact that i've ever experienced and um i think um i mentioned you briefly sort of this um it's a very good place to try homestays okay um yeah i'm a, a huge proponent of homestays in terms of uh you know not only you know getting the money direct to the source True. But allowing um but bhutan uh, like many um sort of places has this problem of young people migrating from the countryside to the cities to look for work Mm -hmm. and it sort of creates this imbalance um and these homestays are sort of working as a real really good solution to um to allow younger couples to stay uh you know out in the countryside and still living and and not only that but sort of you know celebrate and promote their traditions yeah um from the dress to you know uh, making arak and, and things like that and uh yeah i stayed with uh, two different families out there and uh, i'm still in still in touch with one of the girls and oh that's awesome sending me her baby pictures and, oh yeah uh, good. <laughs> <laughs> that's the one thing i read from your article is so uh, yeah we've got our ideas in our mind of what we want to do 
and your article mentioned homestays. And I was like, wow, yes, I need to do a homestay. I've done a few, um, but I didn't even think that'd be possible in Bhutan. They even said themselves that they're kind of more west or central Bhutan. That's the crux yeah. of their tours a lot. And I said to them, well, would you like to go to East Bhutan? Because I'd love to go to Monga. And they're like, mm. yeah, you should, because that'd be the real, almost like a mm. real culture. That is the proper, like, old school culture there. And I was like, oh, God, there's too many places with 250 US dollars a day fee hanging over your head, right? So, yeah, homestays, I, I would second that. That is it's, it's a way to get to re- meet real people, right, and understand how they live. Exactly. And and sort of, you know, it's all mixed in with, you know, the cooking classes making uh, like things like emadashi, which is their local dish of like uh, chilies and melted cheese, yeah. which is delicious. Um, and um, momos, yeah, thank you. Oh, it is. Yeah, I love my Similar to that, yeah. Yeah. There was a famous uh, book, Shangri-La, that came out in the 70s. Mm. A lot of people theorized that it was based on uh, Bhutan um, because this was a country that was cut off out cut off from the outside world until 1979 you know it's ruled by a dragon king you know mm. they they paint ejaculating penises on the side <laughs> yeah. buildings yeah. to sort of ward off evil spirits i mean it's just got so much magic infused in the place it's um really up there in terms of authentic travel experiences and i think that because of their high value low volume tourism policy right i think it will if they stick to that i guess for the time being it will be quite yeah, it, it won't be crowded, I'd imagine. I think um, Joni on my last episode said they've got about 2,000 rooms in Bhutan as a whole. Yeah. Um, so that's not too many. So if they if they keep that number around there, it won't be like crowded places like you know Thailand, for example, before COVID and stuff like that. It, it won't get to that level, I don't think. Absolutely. You never get the sense that you're sort of just, a- apart from places at Tiger's Nest Monastery, yeah. You never get the sense that you're sort of just, you know, following in someone's footsteps the whole time. And you went with Wild Frontiers again on this tour, right? I did, yeah. Johnny yeah. and I are friends, so it's, I, I yeah. like to travel with him. And um, again, it's uh, somewhere he knows well. So it's, um, from what I understand, it's still much easier to travel as part of a, a group there than independently. Yes, um, I think you, you have to have a guide, right? You need to have a guide. Yeah. Oh, you need to have a guide. but yeah. um, <clears throat> So it's often price quality the best way of doing it still. Okay. And I was going to give you credit for a photo. I don't know if it's yours, but there is a photo of the Punaka Zong on, on your article in the Telegraph. Is that your photo? I can't, I can't remember it. No. <laughs> it Let's just looks incredible. Yes. Let's just say yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. So Emma's photo of Punaka Zong <laughs> looked unreal. It's like, like a Zong, I think it's by a river, actually, Yeah. in a valley. And it's just the colours were unbelievable. And I just could, it's just breathtaking. I can't wait to go. Yeah, it's a, a lot of the royals have their events there, like their marriages and the, and the coronations and things. So it's a very important one. Um, yeah, the, the sense of when you walk through the doors, there's just this ethereal silence that sort of descends on the place. And, mm. you know, you've got the sense, scent of the incense and then, you know, the butter lamps inside. They're just incredibly evocative places. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And I want to mention the homestay, actually. Is it Kinley? Is it Kinley's homestay? Yeah, Kinley Jordan. Yeah, yeah I want to shout out because I, I, I loved reading about your experience there so i want to shout that out yeah shout out to kinley she's a superb host and um yeah her and her husband they still live with her parents which is yeah know, quite common um in a traditional a traditional house and uh yeah book with her you'll you won't regret it <laughs> so kinley if you're listening i'll add that to my itinerary in october so if you're available <laughs> so i'll add that in that's brilliant <laughs> and yeah butan I, I, we don't need to say too much more I had a whole episode on it so we've got some real good content on the last episode so i'm really glad that you went there and i we can't wait to go and it's a i think i'm just trying to draw up a bit of interest in bhutan 
um, because it's kind of a country no one, no one really knows much about. Well, I look forward to hearing all your stories. You know. <laughs> okay. Next, my lucky dip was Iran. Ah, oh, yes. One of the, another of those misjudged countries. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a theme here. <laughs> it's your article, Where Two Worlds Are One from National Geographic. Um, please tell me, like, what, oh, again, for me, enough. even now for me, this is going to be new. So I'm keen to hear your experiences. I think the taxi driver said that he's tired of politics when you're in the Absolutely. taxi. And that's, you know, it's quite a, a very common thing as you go around. It's um, you're at the sort of, you know, in the heart of the birthplace of civilization um, yeah. culturally. And it's, you know, you have, you know, places like Esfahan and Najajan Square, which is mm. one of the largest squares in the world. And it's, you know, famed for, you know, this arts and crafts like Mina Karai, which is this beautifully um, <clears throat> azure painted um, copper work and things like that. And, and then you have Shiraz, which is, you know, the birthplace of, you know, Hafez and Saadi mm. and all these great poets. Um, but then again, it's, <clears throat> Same with Pakistan, where you have sort of, you know, a, a pagan element. You have, um, you know, places like Yazd, which is um, a huge center for Zoroastrianism, <clears throat> which is one of the oh. oldest religions in the world. They were, yeah. um, people mistakenly call them fire worshippers, but that's that's not really the case. But you have uh, on the outskirts of Yazd, these um, incredible uh, structures called the Towers of Silence, where they would, <clears throat> Zoroastrians don't believe in burying bodies. Yeah. Um, so they would, you know, place the corpses in concentric circles and allow the birds to sort of pick them, pick them dry. <laughs> um, but, you know, these incredibly ancient structures, obviously Persepolis, you know, you know, Persepolis, yeah. which, you know, Iran's often, you know, uh, given a hard time for, you know, human rights at the moment. Um, but Persepolis was where um, Cyrus the Great, did the first human rights charter indeed yeah, I was reading that in have the you article, seen yeah. yeah have you seen the cylinder they've got um, a, a copy in the british museum i've not is seen that no yeah if i'm to the british museum you can see it it's beautiful okay. cylinder. and um so yeah it's again these sort of um these these truths that are often buried in sort of you know the mainstream media at the moment um yeah, yeah sort of like misconceptions right of of the reality on the ground I mean, of course, you, you, know, you might go to Tehran and you might find some hardcore you know, hardliners there. Of course, they're going to find a few of those about. But I, I'd imagine the general person in the street in all these places that you mentioned and more. Um, probably, I think, what did the taxi driver say? He loves Americans. I mean, yeah. if you're American right now and you heard an, an Iranian in Tehran, I think it's Tehran, said, say that, yeah. you'd be shocked. Exactly. I, I think people sort of... Um, have got stuck in this image of it. Do you remember that film Argo when it, yeah, it covers the yeah. uh, the hostage situation in the seventies? Um, I think people have sort of had that idea frozen in their minds of what, yeah. it's, what it's like. And and I remember, I, so you can still go to the embassy. It's been preserved um, almost as if the day they walked out after. Uh, yeah, there was a, a couple of locals there, and and they'd left not long after that, and. Uh, they interestingly said, oh, you know, we also believe the news headlines that it was too dangerous to come back. And he said, and now I'm really ashamed because it's not like that at all. And mm. he said, we just missed the, this this incredible place to grow up in. And um, yeah, just speak as many to as many people as you can. It really just bucks expectations. I remember um, I was there for one of their holy days and um, <clears throat> I was completely covered. Um, and mm -hmm. I have uh brown eyes yeah so i was quite often mistaken uh for an iranian mm -hmm. and this young couple came up to me and um 
started speaking to me in uh, Persian. And uh, I said, oh, no, <laughs> sorry, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just from Scotland. And, uh, and they're like, oh, and immediately broke into like perfect English. And, um, and uh, you know, she was doing a degree in engineering and her husband was like, you know, what do you think about our women wearing headscarves? He's like, we don't, we don't, you know, it's really not enforced and, and at home. And she said, and at home, I, you know, I, I, you know, don't wear anything. And I'll just wear mm. jeans and a T-shirt and everything. And so they were very keen to try and, you know, to balance that and and I and I and I that was one thing that surprised me that um a, a lot of that covering and again this is controversial is a is a personal choice um okay. in terms of the the, the styles there's mm. <laughs> the, the, the uh, yes thank you yeah. it can be different shapes depending on different generations and styles oh wow and I didn't realize that. Like that yeah okay. exactly um and and there's this whole sort of underworld to it as well like there's you know you know they have the parties and they'll sort yeah. of you know go covered in the shadows and then get out get inside and throw them off and be covered in gucci and <laughs> <laughs> having all these small parties so it's a it's a, it's a real place of contrasts and uh, paradoxes again i just just my research I, I think they push the boundaries the iranians with the with the headdresses and stuff like that with fashion i think mm. we all know that and again people just day-to-day life just are not like enforced to do all these things that we're told about so it's refreshing to see people go there and actually meet real local people who just like live like us. Mm. Uh, a and there's a huge different. difference in opinion between the older generation and the new of generation course. entirely. Yeah, we obviously, again, make this point that the people on the ground and the media is obviously different to what is perceived. And can you tell us a little bit about the practicalities of traveling around? Because I know there's certain visa restrictions, right, for certain countries. Am mm. I right in saying that? There are. Um, it depends how experienced you are as a traveler. Interestingly, a little side note, when I was in Yazd, I got talking to a chap um, who was sort of wandering around the grounds. Um, his name was uh, Loic, and I think he was from Sweden. He was, you know, in his early 20s. And um, I said, oh, you know, do you, do you travel a lot? And he said, oh, no, this is my, my first trip outside of Sweden. And he was actually couch surfing his way around Iran. Wow. as his first ever trip um and I was like fair play to you that is that's <laughs> um, hardcore <laughs> yeah and he said he'd had a great time and um so it is uh possible to travel independently and um uh, and couch search <laughs> if you want or stay in uh, <laughs> local guest houses or whatever yeah. uh, hotels um but again it's sort of this balance of um some of these sites are you know incredibly historical very um mm you know, uh, rich information and just sometimes having uh, guides that are well-versed in that, it, it can just sort of open up different layers uh, to the tr- to the trip. So, but it depends on your, your comfort levels. Okay. And were you part of a tour group for this? It was G Adventures. And then yeah. I'd uh, also been uh, with Wild Frontiers as part of a larger Silk Route, uh, Silk Road itinerary. Oh, wow. So, that sounds incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think Iran just requires a little bit of research with visas. I know certain countries can get them easier than others. And then, yeah, I guess you kind of go in a tour group. But that, that guy, couch surfing, I couldn't believe it when I read that. Because couch surfing really gets you into local people, right? Because <laughs> they'll, they'll take you to places that you may not even see on a, on a guided tour. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And uh, yeah, he can speak highly enough. And he'd actually got the idea from uh, two other travelers he'd, he'd, he'd met back at home. So, wow. you know. The word is spreading. <laughs> so it's possible to go to Iran. Again, 
it adds the growing <laughs> list. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a slight turn in, in terms of different country here in Zimbabwe in terms of, this is about wildlife tourism. Um, I'll be honest here, I've not read the article about Zimbabwe. So please tell us a bit about your trip there. So this was an interesting one in that compared to other safari destinations, I think people, again, have been stuck with the idea, obviously, you know, the, the oppression under Mugabe and yeah. the, you know, plummeting economy and that um, a lot of the wildlife was poached um, when times were hard, but there's this sort of an idea that there is no wildlife and that's not the case at all. Um, it's also, you know, one of the most affordable places to do a safari in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also, there's very few tourists, so you're not having this situation like in Tanzania or Kenya where you've got, you know, 50 jeeps all lined up trying to to get a glimpse at a pride of lions and um they also have some of the best trained safari guides uh on the continent mm-hmm. uh, their training is about three years longer than uh, other oh. uh, safari guides so, okay so they really know their stuff and um and for people that love wildlife this is a real chance to be on the forefront of converse uh conservation mm-hmm. um, because the work that they're doing um more than you know a few other people are trying to do as well but uh essentially conservation um outfits are uh leasing pockets of land to create these wildlife corridors as a sort of uh instead of just having isolated areas um and um so that's quite exciting to see in terms of trying to find new solutions for the human wildlife conflict um and it's it's also just there's the, the quirks because obviously you know people are intrigued by the fact that they were publishing what was a hundred trillion uh <laughs> yeah the money Zimbabwe right? dollar notes yeah, yeah. and and seeing things like that in circulation and um again there's a you know huge range of places to stay from some rather superb five-star camps to sure um again local guest houses so and it's and um, a place that also needs dollars <laughs> yeah i can imagine yeah yeah absolutely i actually met a zimbabwean in australia when i lived there he uh yeah. and benham in australia is a great place for wildlife he was yeah. having withdrawal symptoms from zimbabwe and he actually ended up going back and set up his own company um yeah, i'm not paid to say this but i think they're called taylor's africa mobile safaris something like that and he was just i've never seen someone who loves nature that much in terms of like on the tv in hostel there'd be like it could be National Geographic, it could be something like that on, and he was glued hour. Yeah. No one's distracting him. He's, he's watching it. He's doing it. And he said, yeah, I just love, wild, I love wildlife. I love nature. I, I just have to go back and set something up. So he's gone back and to where he's from and Sounds set it all like up. Found his, found his calling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's in Australia, so weirdly enough, but yeah, yeah, the pictures look incredible. And as always that I saw something the other day, I, I'm intrigued to see what you think of this. Uh, there's a question like deep down naturally, right? If you could pick one view and that's the only view you can see of all time forever right there's like uh, beaches with palm trees there's mountains in the himalayas there's safaris in africa there's like the plains <laughs> in australia whatever right what what view would, it, would you have because i read oh, that this is the impossible question yeah. James. what would you choose it's a it's a toss-up between two and it's really hard and i'll, I'll tell you my answer i'm got to go himalayas the, the view of the mountains okay but very close second is obviously some like cook islands for the beaches yeah, but I, I I read deep down, like in your genes, you historically, you know, thousands of years of evolution, you sort of people generally hanker after that sort of plains of Africa. That's kind of where we all descended from, right? Like it's it's just got that hold on you. 
it's uh i love hearing from travelers that have been or you're going to africa for the first time and hearing their experience because it's something you hear quite often that there's this a sense of a homecoming almost yes which sounds out of place um is europeans or whatever yeah but, there is something, there's a real, you know, earth mother energy there that yeah. um, uh, does resonate. And, and I did have that feeling. Um, what do you I mean? Did you have that when you first went to Africa? I've never been. So uh, ah, okay. that oh, so choice, that choice might change. Yeah. This is what I'm thinking okay. that this article that I read and it's, it's, so, it's so deep rooted in just any human being, you know, I'm not sort of singling anyone out here, just that as a general, you kind of feel like it's a bit like a homecoming. And mm. the majority of people would say that the the plains, you know, the wild plains of Africa, where you see wildebeest running and all the stuff, right? It just has that. Our DNA remembers. Yeah, almost. Yeah. <laughs> but what's yeah, yours? You can't avoid it. Uh, the question. Um, I I do have a very deep affinity for beaches. There's something about hearing the ocean. It's almost like a rhythmic heartbeat. That sound yes. of the waves on the shore. That calms me immensely <laughs> um, and and that sounds sort of you know quite generic you know, white sand beach blue water and it, it's not so much it's also you know I'm a an avid diver and um, you know one of my first experiences was living in Fiji for three months surveying coral reefs to create a marine dream. park yeah. and um, yeah I, it was a dream come true and um, and so for me it's a uh, it just yeah it just resonates with me that kind of environment Mm. Need to need to get the gills wet. <laughs> Can't let them. Well, I've got fear of deep water, so you won't find me in the in the sea. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I choose beach second because I always had ever since you know talk about um, early podcast about your early memories of travel. Mm. I was obsessed with trying to find that paradise beach. I don't I don't know where that comes from, and so that's why it's really close. But when I hit when I saw Himalayas in, in the pool, I was like, no, that's just, that's like Scrap the that. screen behind yeah. me. Yeah, that's the one. But you know, Cook Islands, for example, or Fiji, which I've been to, it's it's just that South Pacific is unrivaled, I think, for beaches, and it it's, it's close, but it's just pipped by mountains. It's that feeling as well, like when beaches where you know if the water is the same temperature as the air, and the, <laughs> it's almost like you become part of that landscape because everything yeah. is sort of a similar temperature and all sort of blends together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, so. and it's so dominating from the way of life over there. Um, yeah, like for those small islands, right? That, it's just based on you know the sea and the tides and all that sort of stuff. But uh, is it warm? Yeah, you go and take a dip. Is it is it calm in the sea? Yeah, we'll go for a sunrise cruise or something like that, right? So or sunset cruise. So yeah, it's close, but I think mountains for me. But yeah, that might change if I go to Africa and experience what you've seen. So I think it's um, that uh, living in in tune or with the rhythms of nature more closely. I think. You know, you know, people in the UK, particularly, or you know, closer to cities, we've really lost touch of that, and we forget mm. actually probably how much our soul yearns for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And do you think it's changed though because of COVID? Right, more people are moving to the countryside mm. now, aren't they? Maybe that's mm, in fear yeah, of people, absolutely. but also sort of realigned back into nature. Yeah, I think people are starting to realise how important it is. And also, a bit of a sidetrack here. I read Johan Hari's book. I don't even know Johan Hari, journalist. Um, he has written a few books about mental health and stuff. And he, uh, in, in one of his books about depression, I think one of his pillars of necessities to keep a good mental health is being within nature. And yeah. he said himself, he's always been in London 
Edgware Road, that's me. And then he felt uncomfortable in, in the Alps, I think it was in Switzerland, but he started to understand that that fresh air and that noise or silence, you can't beat it. Yeah, indeed. Well, they say, you know, everything from the microbes into the soil, you know, for it's meant to be, you know, very beneficial for as an antidepressant effect. And mm. and uh, to even, is it our thing where you're walking barefoot? Oh, yeah. Uh, sand yeah. or wet grass. Um, get the get the positive ions in you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. God, that makes me want to go back to Cook Islands. Oh, unreal. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, we're now going to delve into some uh, yeah, they're, they're travel, personal travel, I'd say, but they're lined okay. with work. I'm going to ask a few things about personal travel, but also, do you have a new book coming out as well? I do, I do. Can it's you tell us about a, that? I was really excited to hear about this. Called The Silent Traveller, and it's uh, 50 Places to Find Calm. And, um, I, I, you know, I was laughing about, about this with friends, and I was thinking, oh, God, the last thing people want after, you know, months <laughs> of lockdown is, is to be on their own in silence again. <laughs> yeah. But actually, it's sort of, you know, I think we fell into two camps. There's people that found or established a relationship with silence and calmness for the first time ever because it was enforced. And they're thinking, oh, there's something to this and they want to experience more of it. And then there's the other camp where, you know, these incredible mums and dads that were, you know, working from home and homeschooling and there was Mm. just chaos and stuff where they're just genuinely frazzled and longing for silence. (laughs) Um, So hopefully it'll appeal to both. And uh, yeah, it's out in September, September this year. September. Okay. And I'll make sure when I hear about that and it's released, I'll put um, some stuff on social media so people can access that. And any, was it it based on just a mix of your personal travels and also with work? Yeah, so it's, um, I've always been drawn to, to, to places uh, that offer that, um, where you can sort of feel sort of the energies of the landscape and things more powerfully. Um, so it's a mixture of travels and the, there's chapters ranging from very wild places to, uh, you know, island idols to even uh, places to find a real pockets of silence and quiet in urban areas as well. Mm-hmm. So there's some, some, some curveballs in there as well. Okay. And have you heard about those silent camps? My friend done one in India for 10 days where he would go to these camps. And at, yeah, you literally can't say anything. <laughs> you can't. How did you find it? He, he said he loves it because he's very, you know, he loves meditation. He found that quite, I wouldn't say easy, but not too bad. But he said some people couldn't hack it. Just had to, like two or three days had to leave because you're not allowed mm-hmm. to, it's extreme if people want to hear this, that you can't even, when you walk in, you can't say, all right, mate, you can't say that. You're very much head down. <laughs> Um, I think even eye contact is maybe not even allowed. And the only time you get to talk or interact is outside of the grounds. That could be later on in the day or after dinner or something, right? So it's quite strict rules. Yeah, it can be very confronting because, you know, we spend a lot of our lives trying to, you know, avoid ourselves in many ways. You know, we distract ourselves with, you know, screens and phones and conversations with other people and, you know, everything under the sun, you know, even reading books. Um, so when you're left just with you, it can uh, open up some uncomfortable spaces. <laughs> but then it's also, um, you know, I interviewed this fascinating sound ecologist who studies the world's quiet places. Okay. Um, and there's an interview with him in the book. And, and he said, you know, people fear that silence is the absence of something, but rather it's the presence of everything. Mm. And I and I thought that was quite telling of the sort of the the richness that can be found uh, in silence. And it's an interesting subject, isn't it? I I can easily sit in silence. That's 
that's not a thing for me. But I guess some people are so like they need to do something, they need to interact, they need to be yeah. constantly entertained, right? It's it's quite an interesting subject with yourself. And it's and it's you could argue that it's sort of got even worse in the sort of last ten years almost because um, this uh, this constant. Um, you know, you know, tweets and Instagram mm. posts where it's all short bites of information. Our yeah. our minds are resetting, so we're no longer able to hold our attention to even read full articles now. You know, some people yeah, just yeah. sort of you know read the beginning and end and sort of skim read the middle, if at all. Um, and uh, there's some really interesting studies into how it's sort of shaping our brains and um, and what that means. So it's uh, yeah, I think a skill we need to remember and sort of come back to a bit. <laughs> And it's interesting as well, because I mentioned the guy before, Johan Hari, he just released a book called Stolen Focus, which is exactly what a book's about, about why we can't focus anymore. And he found himself doing it when he wrote that book, he had to put it, you know, his phones and laptops away in a cave safe for like, you put a timer on it, four hours, you can't get into it, but extreme levels just to even not be tempted to go on your phone or Instagram or Twitter. And he said, yeah. it's, he said himself, he felt like, what's happened to me? So I think he went on a five-year journey to go and find out what happened. It's quite a pernicious pandemic that I think people don't really start paying attention to until it's taken away from them. And then you know, yeah. oh. and, uh, yeah, I, I don't think our, even our parents' generation, or certainly not before that, is you know, it's something they've, they've encountered. So. Yeah, yeah. And also just to finish a bit of a uh, side subject, but also I read an article about like introverts and extroverts, right? So introverts in a workplace loved, well, not love COVID, found it okay because they don't have to deal with the office yeah. politics, right? Yeah. <laughs> they can just sit at home in whatever they want and I guess in a bit of silence, a bit of peace and probably thrived more, I'd imagine. They do. I, I read a fascinating study about introverts and extroverts where um, they couldn't understand why introverts uh, tired very easily in social situations. And they, they found that their brains absorb 10 times more information than extroverts when they're in social situations, which oh, is wow. why they often find them overwhelming and sort of need those periods to recover. So I thought, oh, that's ah. good. I'm not, I'm not just not a party girl. It's just that my brain's taking in ah, too much I was, information. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask, are you introverts? I, I would class myself as an introvert. I'd maybe say I'm an ambivert because okay. I really enjoy talking to people, but then I have to yeah, sort of go away and enjoy quiet periods. I do enjoy my own company. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm probably the same as you, but if I'd pick one or one or the other, it probably would be introvert, I think. And it's crazy saying that because I'm doing a podcast interviewing people pretty much every know, week at the minute. Social host. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there you go. It's just, it's a weird, I guess I'm confused of it because... I sort of yearn for travel to meet people, but within travel, I could easily just stay away in my, in the cafe somewhere in my corner with headphones on and not even interact with anyone. So um, some people just can't do that. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting topic. I probably would like to discover more about. Okay. Personal travel. And okay. we'll finish with that. And then where we can find you on social medias and websites and stuff. And then I've got some quick fire travel questions at the end. What's your, some of your personal, like you, you just lucky dip here, like personal travel is like, I know we talked a lot about you writing about places, but is there a place that you've been to where you've not written about, where it's just a place that you love going to? So I, I, um, I went to Benin. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, just, just, yeah, middle of 2019. And that was phenomenal. So I, as a sort of byproduct, of, I've ended up going to various countries that practice voodoo. So to go to the birthplace of it, um, 
was really sort of a key jigsaw piece for me. Mm. And it's, it fascinates because it's, it's one of the most understood or sorry, misunderstood religions. Um, you know, everyone just thinks of voodoo dolls and curses yep. and things like that, but it's actually, you know, original, uh, originally based around uh, bringing light and, and, and hope um, to um, people. And, and the, tra- the transformations as it, as it across the Atlantic with the slave trade and everything is fascinating. Um, so, uh, and, you know, Benin is, you know, uh, in a wealthy country and mm. um so it was it was pretty bearable in his travel but um i mean i struggle to find words to explain <laughs> some of the things i saw okay. because my rational mind was trying to you know, disprove a little bit or find loopholes and there it was magic i, I have to help throw my hands up and the okay. there was no way of uh yeah okay to to uh to straighten out what i saw so Magic is. <laughs> so they have been in. And, Benin, um, in Africa, uh, people don't know that's in Africa. That's between Togo yeah, and Nigeria. Uh, so yeah, you've got Benin, Togo, Ghana, all three small sisters sort of lined up yeah. Yeah, on the coast. Um, and the other one, maybe Sudan. Um, because a lot of people don't know that it has, you know, more pyramids in Egypt. And uh, yeah. actually, they had this like, fascinating period where they were called the Black Pharaohs, and they ruled Egypt for over a century. Um, oh wow! And, okay, you know, you you know, go to pyramids in Egypt, and they're you know heavily you know guarded, and mm. there's turnstiles, and it's just you know toots galore. And but in Sudan, I mean, there's none of that. Like you could literally <laughs> wander into these incredible tombs um, yeah. with you know just a, a local guide and it's it's uh you almost get that sort of real indiana jones feeling which is quite a rare thing though it is <laughs> um so and they also are an incredibly hospitable uh, people just in the small ways like every every home has you know these big terracotta urns posted outside yeah. and they're filled with water so travelers can oh wow always have okay some, always have something to drink yeah yeah and um and meals are communal, so you'll have full, which is like the fava beans and the tomatoes and the onions mm. and limes and chilies, and everyone will sit around a communal bowl and sort of just dip in. And and it's, uh, yeah, I really like Sudan. Yeah, I think I saw uh, Simon Reeve. I think he'd done something about oh, Egypt, okay. uh, Sudan, was it Ethiopia? About just going along the Nile. And that's when I learned about the pyramids, like you said. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, wow, I didn't realise that they even have more, right? More than Egypt. Yeah, um, they do, they do. So... Yeah, that's a just like a bit of a learning experience for him um, down there, or I think he went up the Nile. But yeah, that was my first exposure to, to Sudan. Again, it probably gets a reputation as maybe somewhere dangerous to travel. Yeah, especially with the split with uh, South Sudan, it sort of yeah. in headlines for a while a few years ago. But um, no, in the in the north where the majority of the sites are, uh, Meroe, uh, Jebel Barkal, which are the main ones you want to see, they're uh, they're far enough away from the border for it to be fine. Okay, like okay. Mm-hmm. And finally, before travel questions, um, I don't know if you know much about them, but they're going to be quick fire. So have some answers ready. Basically, your favorite things. Surprise me. Surprise <laughs> me. Okay. okay. Where can we find you on social media? Uh, so my Instagram is Emma Thompson Travels, but there's no P in Thompson. I'm not like the actress, unfortunately. It really <laughs> messes up my Google searches. <laughs> yeah, that's unfortunate. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's just T H O M S O N. And then. Um, Twitter is Emma S. Thompson. Yeah. And yeah, website is ethompson.co.uk. 
Uh, yeah, so I offer, you know, tutorials if people are wanting to get into travel writing or if they're not sure how to write a pitch, I can offer advice for that as well. And yeah, I'm just really happy to help people that want to sort of maybe get into the industry um, and sort of dispel any myths or fears they may have. So and is that available? feel free to get in touch. Yeah, so is that on your website just get in touch with you? Is that on there? Yeah, there's a link. Yeah. There's a link to my email there. Okay, great. And I might even take up on the travel writing thing because I'm... Um, you know, my mind is like, no, I can't do it. But maybe I need to change my mindset. So yeah, you absolutely can. <laughs> and weirdly enough, just to finish off, I've, I've written a book, but I've not done anything with it. Yeah. Oh wow, what yeah, about yeah. my first five years of travel, twenty ten to twenty fifteen? Yeah. Oh, so you're someone who really used lockdown <laughs> productively. I tell you what, yeah. As a as a side note, I religiously, I mean, I, I even look back and go, wow, I did that about forty five minutes before work. I would, I'd be up at maybe half seven, That's a cup of coffee, impressive. banging and like 45 minutes worth of words. I've done it for about six months, maybe maybe seven months. And now I've got this like huge monster of a book I don't even know, I don't even know what to do with. That's impressive. Um, there you go. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ping it over. Let's have a read. Uh, <laughs> do you know what I'm really worried about is my English is terrible. <laughs> no. Uh, is yours self-published or is it uh, through a publication company? No, it's with Quarkus uh, in print. So See, I'm... Yeah. I'm fully accepting mine to be self-published. So yeah, my next steps are for someone to review it, right? To read it. And that is the next step to basically tell me what to yeah. do next. Well, yeah, you need, a, you need an editor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, yeah, no, even the best writers have them. So it's, it's no uh, slight at all. But, um, no. but yeah, no, I know several publishers are, you know, always open to manuscripts. So. Okay, cool. That's great to know. Okay, great. <laughs> and we're going to finish with some quickfire travel questions. Hey, yeah, just a quick one before we carry on with the travel questions. I just want to say there are many ways to support this podcast. You can buy me a coffee and help support the podcast with $5. Or you can go to my merch store with the affiliate link with TeePublic, where there's plenty of merch available to buy, such as t-shirts, jumpers, hoodies, and also some children's clothing. Thirdly, which is free, you can also rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, or Good Pods. Also, you can find me on social media on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and TikTok. Simply just search for Winging It Travel Podcast and you'll find me displaying all my social media content for traveling, podcast, and other stuff. Thank you. It's travel question time. So, hit me. Are you ready? Because you traveled to a lot of places, um, you're going to get a bit of leeway here, maybe <laughs> top two or three. So, you're quite lucky with this. Um, but let's say top three countries that you would like to travel to next. It can be no order, but what's on your hit list? Okay, so I have two big gaps, Japan and India, so definitely those. Mm. And I would like to go to Saudi Arabia because it's got a terrible human rights record, women's rights, and I think we need to, A, balance uh, the social media campaigns that came out a few months ago and um, also to have a female writer to really investigate what it really is like for female travellers over there. Okay, next question. Uh, again, any order, three of your favourite countries that you travelled to? Uh, Marquesas Islands in French Polynesia. Could talk about them for ages. Um, incredible mana energy. Um, it's also where a lot of sort of you know, the, the Murray tattoos, all that yeah. sort of originated from these islands. Jack, uh, Jacques Braille, uh, Paul Gauguin are buried there. People wouldn't even know that. Um, 
Fascinating. Just quickly as well, do you know the photographer Emmett Sparling no. on Instagram? He's, he's from Canada. He's very young. He's like 23 or 24. He's, mm-hmm. he's Vancouver. He went there just recently for 10 days and he's a photographer. And again, it just looks incredible. Yeah. No, wow. A really special place. So yeah, yeah that was top. Um, Papua New Guinea. Um, oh, wow. Again, if you can find opportunities to do homestays they you know some of the tourists tend to stick to quite a tight triangle of the area Mm. but um yeah just lives up to all your dreams of it being uh, yeah just i'm see see i'm a terrible writer i've I've lost for words when i try (laughs) to remember it yeah just everything the charm of like the uh the pigeon english to you know the bird life and the wildlife anyway uh so papua new guinea and um Antarctica was a special one because, um, you know, I, I didn't grow up hugely rich as a, as a Scottish, you know, young Scottish girl. And, mm-hmm. you know, I always looked at that as somewhere that would just be that I could never afford to visit. Yeah. Um, and so to have a commission to go there was a dream come true. I mean, the Drake Passage crossing, I thought I was going to die. I won't, I won't lie. <laughs> I've got terrible sea legs despite loving the ocean. And uh, it was rough as. But um, <laughs> but once you get there and, you know, that that silence. And I write about it in, in the book that I mentioned earlier. Okay, good. It's, yeah. it's unlike anything. Um, it's a really special, special place. You have an article about that as well, didn't you? Again, I didn't get to it. There's too many. but I did. It was the anniversary of Shackleton uh, yeah. going. So, yeah, I wrote about it then. Okay, which leads me nicely on to, if you had to pick three articles that you have written um, that people should read, what would they be? Um, Maybe my first one, which I wrote about mountain biking in the Yukon. Um, (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) Oh, we don't talk about that. That that was was pre-recording, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Do you want me to give a bit of the Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's quite funny, yeah. So it was one of the the first uh, stories I pitched that was commissioned and... um, they, they said, oh, you can you can mountain bike, Emma. I said, sure, sure, no problem. How hard can it be? And, you know, living in Belgium at the time, it's not exactly a good training ground for mountain bikers being flat as a pancake. Yeah. And um, and uh, so I went out there and, you know, we're going along these boreal forest paths and doing huge dips and jumps. And I was so beyond <laughs> out of my depth. It was hilarious. Um, but uh, so I managed to stagger into town one day uh, in Whitehorse and they have a beautiful um, little museum there, which um, mentions Robert Service, who was hailed like the bard of the Yukon. He's like their mm. version of Shakespeare. And he, he did beautiful poems that really capture the soul of the wilderness out there. And so I incorporate some of his poetry into that article. And uh, I really like that. Um, should probably mention the Greenland one, which one? Uh, yes, yeah, that's another one that I would love to talk about maybe another time, um, but yeah, that's, that looks incredible. Yeah, that was, uh, a really uh, fun one to write um and what else do I, I actually with the iran one you mentioned um mm-hmm. I, I really like that as a piece um i love writing for national geographic traveler because you know they you give you really meaty features so you can okay. really get into depth yeah uh, sort of exploring themes and ideas um, so that was a good one Okay. So those are the top three. <laughs> yeah, and there'll be links to those. Don't you worry about that. Okay, you are a beach lover. So one of my questions that I have put on my website is favourite beach? That's a good question and a hard one. Well, one is the beach I lived on in Fiji for three months whilst I was yeah surveying the reefs. Um, but I'm not going to tell people where it is. Oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's just labelled Fiji. You know, it's, yeah, it was uh, a, it was a small island. I'll I'll tell you the name of the island. It was an island called Yadua, which is okay. uh, off the off the mainland. But um, it's, some places you just have to keep special yeah. for yourself. I agree. Um, and then I was lucky enough to, in between lockdowns, when restrictions eased, I went on assignment to the Seychelles. Okay. And there was um, a, a beach called Anstorgette, which is, um, you have to cross the hotel grounds to get it, but it's completely raw and trammeled. There's no sun loungers, there's no vendors, nothing. It's just mm. raw, wild beauty. Okay. It's pretty special. Yeah. Do you drink coffee? Not a huge amount. Why? It's not a suspicious question. It's just um, oh. it's, it's a two-tailed question, really. If you could pick a city in the world. And just drink coffee and watch a world go by. Where would that be? Do you know? There's just some classics. Paris. Yep, that's mine. Paris on no a shame. spring afternoon, sitting outside. You can't beat it. No shame. <laughs> it's got that joie de vivre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, the, the second part of the question, I guess, is more for real coffee drinkers than if you are one. Is if you pick a country's coffee to drink, what would it be? What's your favourite coffee? So. I was lucky enough to visit St Helena, which is one of the world's most yeah. remote islands. Yeah, when the airport opened a few, what's it, two thousand seventeen, and um, so they have the world's rarest coffee. Um, wow! Apparently, apart from you know the ones that where they force it down the gut of some, what's the that's that animal? Where A weasel um, coffee. Yeah. <laughs> I had, some, had some of that in Bali and. Vietnam, I think. Yeah. But this is just, you know, pure, you know, home growing, home roasted Lovely. coffee and uh, very nice. <laughs> okay. Next question is what what is the total number of countries that you traveled to? Do you know what? I have never counted. No way. I, I honestly, um, and it's funny, I, people have asked me that um, when I've been on the road. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a counter. Just have to throw my hands up. Um, Can you give I a ballpark figure? I probably should. <laughs> Um, it's probably close to a hundred. Yeah. yeah. I was going to guess what you might be up there. Um, That's incredible. Yeah. What, what's your number? 50. 50. Nice yeah. round number. Nice yeah. round. Until what? Two months time. Yeah. yeah. I think I, I mean, it's not as a judgment. I just remember being on a plane one time and I sat next to this, this elderly gentleman and we were chatting and, um, he was a, you know, a stamp well, you know, passport stamp collector. Oh, uh, yeah. He was, yeah. we were in Guyana and he literally visited French Guyana for a day and was counting that as having visited. And I thought, well. Yeah, it's arbitrary, isn't it? You're Again, missing the point a bit yeah, there. So, yeah. Uh, There's always these competitions about who traveled to the most countries in the quickest time. And it doesn't really yeah, mean anything. Say, oh, as long as you spent one night there, it counts. And I'm like, I'm not sure. Like, I've, you know, spent, you know, a good amount of time in some places but i still don't really count it as having seen them because mm. you need to see a good chunk i think to get a good sense yeah it's it's a tough discussion like i think i don't take too seriously but it's just a good number to have because people get amazed by it because going to their third country is a big thing right so when they hear someone's done like a hundred mm. it's quite inspirational in that way and just in a, like a basic data sense like, oh you've been to a hundred wow like, and I feel might... incredibly privileged that mm. um, the opportunities the career offered in that sense. I never take it for granted. <laughs> okay, cool, cool. Mm. Uh, are you much of a trekker? Hiker, trekker? Oh, yes. Yep, yep. Okay, Actually, keep... uh, going back to Bhutan in a few months to cover the opening of the Bhutan Trail. Hang on a minute. 
That was not mentioned in the Bhutan <laughs> section. <laughs> I know, I know. Sorry. Well, it's uh, yeah. We're just as you say. I'm waiting to see what's happening with the quarantine situation. Um, but oh, yeah, so you're going back the, this year. Oh wow. So yeah, the King's reopening uh, at the end of the month. Actually, um, this trail has been closed for 60 years, and it was used by pilgrims back in the day, and obviously, you know, um, wow. herders and things like that. So you should definitely, you know, look into it when you go over. Is that east to west? Um, it's mainly in the east. It, it it traverses quite a long. I can't remember the actual uh-huh. full distance. I think the full distance is close to 400 miles. So you don't have to obviously walk the whole thing. You can write uh, sections. Yeah, that would be tough. The sections furthest east are the most uh, dramatic. So. Okay, it's interesting because the, the guys at Drug Asia, Joni, I think he's like the managing director, maybe even the owner of it. He mentioned there's some sort of, this could be the same thing, where they're going to be going to like, trek from east to west that's it along with like loads of jeeps and stuff like that like it's like a convoy going to like have a look at it you can drive sections of it others are uh, are hackable oh wow that's i can't can't wait to see that yeah that's incredible okay um but yeah i think the question was some of your favorite tracks like just a a few that you can recall Um, off what you mind Oh, actually this wasn't even an assignment something i really enjoyed was doing the west highland way with my dad ah that's a great area, yeah, absolutely. It's just, yeah. it was beautiful. And um, yeah, good daughter-father bonding uh, yeah. experience as well. And uh, like you say, you don't always have to go farther afield for some, some good adventures. Where yeah, did you stay like each night? Um, so my dad, obviously, you know, my dad's into his, well, into his 60s now. So yeah. we did a and so we didn't camp. But we were staying in, you know, um, we've got some great little sort of yurts set up. And then yeah. some yeah. of the really traditional uh Air, um, guest houses and you know there's that is it the drover's inn which is the haunted pub on route and things like okay. that yeah yeah, yeah. Scotland looks incredible doesn't it well you'd obviously know <laughs> um, for me it's it's actually quite high on the list yeah, yeah just haven't really been there apart from Edinburgh classic yeah no there's a lot more to it and um just try to avoid uh midgy season <laughs> <laughs> yes okay that's that's fair enough and that's that's equivalent for new zealand for those little sand flies i don't know know if there's a season for them but they're they're annoying as well blinders (laughs) (laughs) okay you get one human and one nature landmark oh these are tough questions they're designed to be yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay i will have to say the hansa valley in pakistan for just epic scenery nature yeah does that am i answering the question correctly yeah yeah that's the nature um, i guess you can have a human landmark that maybe it is popular but tiger's nest monastery the way it clings like a swallow's nest to this sheer mountain face it's just a marvel of engineering considering you know it's 17th century you think mm. how on earth and then even you know you know it's, it's well visited but even when you go inside the even if you're not a spiritual person, you can't help but just feel it sort of infuse into your bones with all the butter lamps and the incense and the chanting. And it's uh, it's really, really special. Yeah, can't wait to see it. As I said before, <laughs> many times. Okay, this is quite a, a tough one. What's okay. your favourite country's cuisine? I'm going to have to go cliche. Italy. Oh, everyone says that. <laughs> no, you, not, can't, you can't. You can't. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. a good pasta yeah. with a glass of wine. <laughs> I know, because the, the the weird thing and the bad thing. I agree. 
and I'm asking it's like it's not very adventurous is it but it's uh <laughs> just yeah or Greek um oh yeah, yeah I just yeah Greek food yeah sorry it's not very adventurous but... no it's a very popular answer uh, mine's in, <laughs> mine's Indian but there we go that's that's oh, fine that's good. yeah okay I've got a few more okay. and then like a favorite activity so where I went with this one is like something like skydiving or diving mm. but I guess you're, you're a bit of a diver so yeah I love scuba diving yeah it's um yeah I try to get under get under the water as, as often as I can and as an offshoot of that maybe three places that you love scuba diving that got some of the best views underwater oh um French Polynesia was incredible <laughs> yeah. Amazing um place. Yeah. uh did quite a lot of dives off the both the east coast and the west coast of Australia. West coast, particularly up north around Ningaloo, super. Oh, yeah. Obviously, yeah. you've got the whale sharks that migrate through there, which is incredible. There's also um, a place called it's Bremer Canyon, which is not what you'd expect. You can actually see orcas off the coast of Australia. Um, it's off oh, the wow. uh, southwestern tip. Um, yeah. it's it's this real anomaly um uh so that's quite a major place but you, it's mainly just not from there and where's that in south is that southwest australia because i used to live yeah. in just Ma- the, yeah margaret river that's where i lived for half a year oh yeah yeah it's a bit so, further south than that maybe just right off the tip yeah, yeah. okay so, um again bring your bring your seasickness tablets because <laughs> it can be pretty rough but uh <laughs> and then um Oh, actually, uh, Nusa Lembagan off the coast of Bali is fantastic for manta rays. Okay. We've got a lot of yeah. manta rays. So yeah. Quite a special sighting as well. Lovely. So I'll say those three. <laughs> that's a great three. Okay, a few more and we're done. It will be, if you could pick a country that you've not lived in, so I guess Belgium's ruled out, Scotland's ruled out, England, UK's ruled out, to live in, where, where would you live for a year? Probably Bali really it's got everything i know that's terribly it's just i didn't like it when i went it's the, the only place i didn't like yeah i've been to did yeah. you travel all around um ubad and uh, kuta Kangu. oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no there, there's there's um i need to go back yeah, <laughs> yeah if you've got a, a north as well um okay places like Lombok I think just just being realistic in terms of you know remote working the beaches the yeah, spirituality of, of the place I'm probably gonna be judged for that aren't I <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're getting people writing in for or that. Tahiti I'd love to live in Tahiti I mean Tahiti just sounds so exotic doesn't it it's just yeah, yeah incredible place but looks of it okay my French back up to scratch <laughs> oh at least you can speak French crikey Poorly. <laughs> yeah <laughs> Okay, it's a random one because I live in Canada. There's loads of lakes. What's your favourite lake that you've seen? Do you know there's um, actually there's one I'd really want to see, which is Lake Baikal. Awesome, um, and why is that? I, we produced when I was working for Brat Travel Guides. Um, we produced a, a guidebook to it, and I just thought, oh, God, this just seems so remote, ethereal, just not what you'd expect. Okay, it just yeah, one of those sort of off the beaten track places. Lovely. Okay. And on your travels, what has been the best country for the value of money? So where does your pound or dollar go to furthest, would you say? I mean, Vietnam. Vietnam's pretty... Uh, oh, yeah. Travel yeah. for a long time. Oh, not much there. Yeah. And again, the cuisine. Oh, maybe I'll add that to my cuisine list, actually. <laughs> Can't beat Vietnamese street food. Big bowls of pho. pho yeah, yeah, it's up there. Every day. <laughs> but me yeah. as well, as a side. Yeah, love that. Yeah. 
yeah. Let's see Vietnam. Okay, uh, so a few more, then I'll let you go. It's okay. basically three tips for someone who wants to be a travel journalist. What are the three tips that you would give? Ooh, okay. Um, begin by writing, like people think you've got to, you know, take all these, go to these exotic places. Try writing about something near you. Mm-hmm. Try seeing it with fresh eyes, you know, and go through all the senses. What does it smell like? What does it sound like? What does it feel like? What is it, you know, the, the taste? Is there a taste in the air or whatever? Um, to sort of practice noticing the details of a place. Because quite often, if you go to somewhere completely um, new for the first time, you can be sort of bamboozled by your, you know, your senses are sort of overwhelmed. So if you're sort of honing those skills already, it allows you to sort of break down and think, okay. Um, so write about that. Um, start small. So maybe start by writing um, a blog or, you know, magazines at the front have a lot of lists and top 10 things to do. Yeah. Uh, start with pitching those if you wanted to be published. Yeah. Have have a friend or someone just to look over your writing because it's, it's seeing it with fresh eyes. You know, write, you know, don't hold yourself back. I think people sort of get trip up on that first sentence. Yeah. And you've got sort of the blank screen in front of you. Just start writing you know, and then go back, fresh eyes, leave it a day, refine, get a friend to look at it, get a mentor. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great advice. I mean, for my my, my book uh, journey, I didn't even care about how it even sounded right. I just wanted to get everything I could remember down. And then I went back and yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a week later, we read what I'd done. What's um, the, I'm trying to remember, was it, was it Hemingway that said, uh, write drunk, revise sober? <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. my advice. There you go. Okay. <laughs> okay. Probably journalist. And, yeah, probably journalist. Yeah. And the last question I normally finish on, um, obviously a big part of your life is travel. So if you're listening to this podcast today and you're not really done much, but you really, really want to make the leap, why, what few senses of wisdom can you pass on to tell them why they should go? I think it, people always have that fear of like, it's the first step, you know, and then you've got the journey ahead of you. Um, do you know what, honestly, James, this is a really difficult question for me to answer because it's so ingrained in me. It's so in my blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really struggle <laughs> where people, for instance, um, you know, my brother, he's not a very keen traveler. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I just, I, I struggle. Like I took him on a, a trip to uh, Marrakesh and he hated the whole thing. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I, tell you, I tell you, it makes it easier. So many people say, well, why not? That is so popular with, my, with that question. Because yeah. don't forget, I obviously interview a lot of people who love traveling the same as you and I, right? And they just, they struggle to understand why you wouldn't want to go. But yeah. being in North America, That's for example, especially US, there's so many people who just don't even consider going or even just too scared. Um, and I have quite a few US listeners, so I'm trying to like maybe cheer up a little bit. I, th- I think, yeah, you're right. So I will say a lot of people, their fear comes from the anticipation of, the unknown, what could go wrong, the mm. paperwork. I guarantee that none of those or very 1% of those fears are ever realized and that the, the immersion, the food, the people, everything always exceeds your expectations. Mm-hmm. So okay. it's, it's just book that ticket, get on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's uh, yeah. I think as humans, like, once you're in it and you're dealing with it, you're 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 in the hustle and the bustle, and there's mm. just it's it, it sweeps you along. There's you lose that fear when you're in it. So 
Yeah, I think just to add to that, I think we, in 2013, quite fresh-eyed, our university popped into Bangkok for the first time. Mm. And that is a culture shock. So, I still have times yeah. when I'm on the plane and I'm thinking, I got those little butterflies and we're yeah, landing. Yeah. I'm thinking, okay, yeah. here we go. You know? <laughs> I think you so, need that in your life. I think you need a little bit of that. Yeah, um, it, keeps, it makes you feel alive. Yeah, just, <laughs> yeah, and it keeps like you progressing as a human being, I think. So I think exactly. you kind of need those little butterflies. So Emma, thank you so much for coming on. It's been great. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure, James. Thanks for such a lovely chat. Happy travels later on. I can't wait to hear all about them. Yeah, people can find both of us on social media. A lot of travel content out there. So, yeah, uh, looking forward to following you on your. I'm very jealous of that Bhutan trip. Yeah, it's been great chatting. It's just been, yeah, really nice to have a conversation about travel. Like, no. Yeah, no set for your listeners, like, yeah, tag me in your travels because I love hearing about what people's impressions of places and mm. and uh, and how they get on and their tips as well. So, cool. thanks cool. so much, James. Take nice, care. Thanks, Emma. Take care. All the best. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to my Winging It Travel podcast episode today. You can find me on Instagram at James Hammond Travel or Winging It Travel podcast. You can search for both. I release weekly clips of this podcast episode as well as photos from the last eight to ten years of my travels. You can also follow me on TikTok, Facebook and Pinterest by searching Winging It Travel podcast. I do release daily content to do with travel and the podcast throughout the week also check out my website jameshammond.org there's content about myself my travels and there's also a newsletter sign up as well as a contact form finally please rate and review the podcast on podchaser this is my platform of choice alternatively you can rate this on apple or wherever you get your podcasts from this really helps the podcast gain a bit of traction for the future in terms of guests and content And I'm glad to see that you guys are listening out there, reviewing it and enjoying the content so far. Stay safe, stay humble, keep listening, keep traveling and I'll catch you soon. Cheers, James.